Good morning, Grace Valley. I am a person of short stat stature, so I may be moving around and coming over here. And I'm not quite like Paul. I won't stand over the step, but I, I'll be moving around. So um, thanks for having me. Uh, this morning, um, God has put it on my heart to tell you the story of an old church you might not have heard of, or if you did, maybe only in passing. I want to tell you the story of a church that was born, sustained, moved, and multiplied because its ordinary people were gripped by the gospel of God. I want to tell you the story of the church in Antioch, which we read about in this text. A place where there was no gospel at all, but by the power of God turned out to be the launching pad not just for the region, but for worldwide missions. After Jerusalem, Antioch became Gospel Hub 2.0. And Luke the Evangelist, as you just heard, paints a busy but compelling portrait of a church on fire, a gospel-driven church. Before we dive in, let me just tell you a little bit how we get to Antioch. Because it's in the middle of Acts, right? The lead-up to what God has been doing in the story of the early church up to this point. Because before we get to Acts 11, the action in the Acts of the Holy Spirit is in high gear. After Pentecost, Jesus' once fearful followers, if you feel like that this morning, turned into courageous witnesses for him in Jerusalem. The Spirit comes down with incredible power, just like Jesus promised, and they can feel it in their bones not just in their brains. The gospel is not just an idea for them anymore. It is the life and person of Jesus, the man they knew and lived with, pulsing them through their lives and causing them to reach out. So that, you know, a few chapters later, Peter and John's words just summarize that, that part of Acts so well. They say, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. They can't help but talking about Jesus. And so in Acts 1 to 8, the gospel is breaking out, breaking out of the confines of the Jewish religion, out of the land of Israel, out of Jerusalem, into Judea, into pagan and untouchable Samaria, into the cities of Caesarea, and into the rest of the world. By the time we, act to, we get to Acts 8, um, where Philip shares the gospel with the African eunuch, the action has shifted into high gear. Daryl Johnson puts it really well. He said, someone has put his foot on the accelerator big time. The gospel is on the move, expanding, even under the pressure of persecution. In the two chapters before our text this morning, we see God doing what no pious Jew would have expected. In his excitement, Peter says, then God has granted to Gentiles also the gift of repentance. Gentiles also. Also. In Jesus, people who were not part of the Old Testament, the Old Judaic Covenant, are coming in and fully welcomed in for the first time in history, officially, with open arms, as part of the gospel. People from every nation, culture, custom, religion, background, doesn't matter. And the Spirit is falling on them too. And so that's how we get to Acts 11 this morning. If I sound excited to you, I've been living in the, in the book of Acts for the last maybe few, few months, maybe... And, and, and I'm just excited. I, I believe that God means to move like this in our time, in our generation. 
I believe God wants to grip us afresh with a strong and urgent sense that this gospel is for us. Yes, it is for you. As we encounter him day by day as his disciples, our lives are constantly being adjusted, realigned, reoriented. Just like the testimony we heard this morning. And Luke gives us four ways in which the gospel begins to drive that church when it comes to Antioch. And my plea today for you, what God has pointed in my heart, is to just remind us that this gospel is not just for us. It is meant to go out from us. It is meant for the life of the world. So in this morning, maybe you feel, I, I am barely hanging on as a follower of Jesus. And I want to say to you, that's okay. I've been there. Many of us in this room are in that place. But if you are feeling blinded this morning by sin, by unbelief, by self-absorption, maybe pettiness, cry out to him. Say, Lord, I want to see that gospel again. I want to be gripped by it. Because there's exciting things ahead, friends, that we don't want to be missing on as God's church. So Luke, this morning, as we look at this passage, gives us four snapshots or glimpses of the church. Four things will follow through. Witness, it's how the church is born. Discipleship, mercy, and then worship and mission. Verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that came from Stephen went all over the place. We'll look at these areas in a second. But listen, they spoke to no one but Jews. But there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene who spoke to Greeks also. So witness, ordinary people talking about Jesus. That's the first portrait of a gospel-driven church. We see witness. We see people that are normal, ordinary people talking about Jesus. And what, what makes them witness? It's not ideal circumstances. It's actually persecution. The persecution that broke out because of Stephen and his long sermon in chapter 7 is what drove these Christians. It scattered them to other places. So it's not because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're choice or, or they feel particularly led, but because of the circumstances. So notice how the gospel first expands geographically. You might notice the names of all these places. Those are meaningful things to notice. As Jesus told them in Acts 1.8, these disciples were to bring the gospel out of Jerusalem and into the farthest parts of the earth. Luke names these places, and they are meaningful because that geographic expansion is part of God's plan for the gospel. It's always been that way. So it goes into untouchable Samaria, that area that the Jews did not want to go to, people whom they despised. It goes into modern-day Lebanon called Phoenicia in the Bible. It goes into Cyprus, that island in the middle of the Mediterranean. It goes into Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria just on the edge before we get to Turkey. And in this part of Acts, Luke wants to draw our attention to what happens there. Notice that the disciples, under the pressure of persecution, don't go into hiding. It actually drives them into further opportunities. They're not afraid of the towns or the cities. And Antioch was no small place. It was actually the third city in the empire. It was the third largest city at the time, right after Rome and Alexandria where I was born. It was nicknamed Queen of the East. It was everything we know and have come to expect of cosmopolitan big cities. It was commercial, it was diverse, it was large. 
It was the capital city of Syria and a base with the Roman military. And because of that location, it was crossroads. I can picture, it, it, scholars tell us it would be the kind of town where you'd have on the highway signs saying, this is where east meets west. It was called, it was actually nicknamed Antioch the Beautiful. It was pluralistic. It had Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, like me, Africans, Indians, and people from all over. And it was idolatrous. Antioch housed temples with several deities for uh, Zeus, Apollos, and Ashtarte. Cult prostitution and sexual immorality was rampant. They say that in the ancient world, the only place that rivaled Antioch was Corinth. And that's where they went. They went to Antioch. There, they went to share about Jesus. Listen, proclaiming, this is what Paul, Luke says, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus. Good news. Don't skip on those words. If you have a Bible, maybe underline those words. They're meaningful. That's what we're called to give to the world. News. News of what God has done in Christ that puts the world right side up. News that God redeems people like me and you, sinners, transforms them and renews them, not just for their sakes, but for the world too. Good newsizing is how one of my favorite preachers puts it. That's what we're called to do. Good news eyes. That's what you do when you talk about Jesus. It's the pattern that is repeated over and over again. One commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, says that these daring disciples also presented Jesus in a way that Gentiles could understand. They used the words, again, Luke does not squander words. He says they preach the good news about the Lord Jesus. These words are meaningful. They claimed something about him. They said that he is Lord and that he is Savior because that's what his name means. Maybe you're new to Christianity. Um, or maybe you, we need that refresher of what the gospel is. So I want to just talk a little bit. What are we good newsizing? The content of the gospel is the news that Jesus is Lord. It, it is talking about life, the promise of life under his reign. When you come under the kingship of Jesus, Lord, you come under his reign. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Life lived Right side up. I hear you guys have been going through the Sermon on the Mount. It's life lived under his rule and his kingship. But it's not only that. It is a call and a demand. History itself is at a crisis point. Remember what Jesus said. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is come near. It's come near to you this morning. Repent. Turn around. Repent and turn and throw your weight on Jesus and believe the good news. The crucified Savior can re reconcile you to God. You can have him as your father. You can be the child of Almighty God. There is no better news in the world. Regardless of your past, your sin, your immorality, your bondage, your addiction, your brokenness, where, where you're at this morning, this is good news for you. He has done everything that needs to happen so that you can be forgiven and welcomed. If you want an easy way to remember it, 
for, for those of us who want to grow in sharing the gospel, Leslie Newbegin has a nice little summary. He says the gospel is a person and an event. The person is Jesus, a real historical person, the Son of God. An event because he actually came in history. He lived. He died. He was buried. And he rose again. It's a name and an event. Have you thrown your weight on Jesus yet? That is the question this morning. That is a question for you. But as you can already uh, hear from what I've said, this news is good for the world. This news has a tendency to bring healing and wholeness to a broken world. Now, mind you, I have come to believe that the way this happens is slow. And that's okay. That's part of God's plan. The way this news spreads is kind of like leaven in the bread. It takes time, but eventually it gets into the whole thing. And it makes a wonderful loaf of bread that you can eat. It just enters, and throughout history, this is what God has been doing. He has been redeeming and renewing, not just Antioch, but as the gospel has spread through the world, it's come here. And it is our time to continue in that mission. The gospel is not just that we are meant to be transported into heaven and go sit in eternity floating on clouds, holding clouds and singing forevermore. The gospel is way more than that. It is the redemption of this world, this very place where we live. Otherwise, it is a truncated gospel. So don't undersell the gospel. The only way we can seek to see the gospel go out is to love our towns and our city and to seek their renewal. Notice too that the gospel expands culturally. Expands culturally. It goes across cultural boundaries. Did you notice what he said, Luke? He said, they preached to Greeks also. See, these ordinary Christians, these ordinary Christians, they, they proclaimed to people who were not part of their ethnic group. They proclaimed indiscriminately across geographical and cultural boundaries. They were inclusive. They were bold. They dared to, to transgress the identity and boundary markers that polite society says you cannot cross. Or that church, even sometimes. Says, don't, don't talk to these people. That was not a concern for them. And they proclaimed in a way that they could understand. They proclaimed that he was Lord. And that had, over, that had overtones that were political. Because Caesar, at that time, proclaimed himself to be Lord and Savior of the world. And when, and when people talked about Caesar in those days, they, they, they published good news, evangelions, about Caesar, that he is the Lord of the world. And so they said, no, there is another Lord. They offered a Lord and Savior who could liberate and save them from guilt and bondage and the threat of spiritual powers beyond their control. They came in good news eyes about the true king of the world even if they were laughed at. I can imagine that they were probably laughed at because for the Greeks to proclaim a Lord who was crucified was laughable, a stumbling blocks to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, he says. So maybe they were laughed at, but they kept going. And what did God do? He added people to the church. One last thing before we move to the second point. I promise they won't all be this long. But notice that these Christians were anonymous. Luke doesn't even tell us their names. 
We don't know their names. And I think that's because they were ordinary disciples like you and I. There was nothing, there was nobody that really stood out for Luke to mention. Their outreach efforts would have ripple effects for years to come, and we will see that in a moment. But we know nothing about these men and women. If you've ever wondered if you can make a difference, think about the disciples in Antioch. Think about the small ways in which you speak and share of him, of his life and what he's done for you. And remember these disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene. No celebrities here, friends. No fancy people who will write books and, 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 and go on television. Just normal people like you and I. They were what we call lay people. No clergy here, really. Just Christians, run-of-the-mill Christians, talking about what they've seen and heard. Verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number turned and believed in the Lord. And this is a good reminder for us that just us speaking is not enough. We need to rely on the power of the sovereign Holy Spirit who saves people and adds them to the church. It is nothing if God is not at work among us. And so when we share, when we speak, even in normal, ordinary ways, let's be people in prayer. Let's be relying and praying that God would save and turn lives around. Because this is not a work. This is an impossible work, really. This is work that only God can do in people's hearts. And so we must pray. But we have the same risen Lord to proclaim that they did. And he is still in the business of changing lives today. When the gospel is driving us, we can't help but speak about Jesus, what we've seen and heard. That's point number one. Point number two is a gospel-driven church is a community. Look with me at verses 22 to 26. Disciples are described there who are fully devoted to Jesus. We see a gospel-driven community that is devoted to Jesus. And of course, when the gospel is on the move the way it was in Antioch, people take notice. And so it says, a report came to the attention of the church in Antioch, in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem. Mother Church finds out. And they're excited, but they rightly decide to investigate the authenticity of what's going on in Antioch. So they send who? This fellow Barnabas. Notice how the Antioch Christians didn't mind. They submitted themselves to the discernment of the mother church in the person of Barnabas who came. And when Barnabas arrived, look at verse 23 with, with me. What did Barnabas see when he arrived? Verse 23, he saw grace. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced. He saw disciples devoted to Jesus, and so he encouraged them to press on. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, it says. He saw grace. What do you see in the church? What do you see in your sisters and brothers in the church? I have no doubt that Barnabas saw things that were, were less than perfect. Things that he could have complained about. He could have said a really thorough report with all the weaknesses and imperfections of this church. But this man had his priorities straight. He set his heart to exhort them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And he just encouraged them. What else did he see? He saw God at work in the diversity of disciples. This is where I want us to just go momentarily to chapter 13, verse 1. These are the people leading the church that he's describing for us. Now, in the church in Antioch, there were these prophets and teachers, and then he goes on to describe them for us. A genuine 
diversity of disciples. Not just in the congregation, but on the pastoral team. Just like Antioch was diverse, that was reflected in the leadership of the church. And so we have these people. I, I want you to picture this five-person pastoral team from three continents. It's the climax of Pentecost. You've got at the stable fellowship, you've got um, Barnabas, who was a Cypriot landowner. Beside him, pictures Simeon, who was called Niger because he was black. So he was African. Next to him sat Lucius of Cyrene from Libya, also an African. Beside him, Lucius, sat, uh, beside Lucius Sadmanian, an aristocrat of the court, so a politician of sorts, a man of the establishment, a man of influence. And next to him, Saul, that old persecutor who's now a fiery scholar preacher for the Lord. I don't imagine it was easy for all of them to get along. But by God's grace, they, they managed. They managed to get along. Because this is God's design for the church. And God has brought the nations to Canada. He brought me to Canada. On purpose. And so this is intended. Paul says in Colossians 3.11, Here in the church there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. In Christ the barriers come down. And that's what we see in the first Gentile church. But friends, this grace doesn't come in a vacuum. It comes when the gospel of grace, the doctrines of grace, are taught and go down, not just from the head, but into the heart. And that's what they, they do. Um, so much of the ministry we see that Barnabas is doing, and, and we'll get to that in a second, that Saul is doing, is a ministry of what? Teaching. They are teaching. They are drilling deep into what this gospel means and how it ought to transform their lives. Ray Ortland puts it well. He said, it is gospel doctrine that creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace in our churches. In other words, we can't live the way that Paul and that we've been describing this morning. We can't live that life of grace. We can't live as a family of Christ unless we live by grace, unless we believe grace and live by it. Then the church will be beautiful and powerful. But there are no shortcuts to getting there. Doctrine is important. They don't skip that step. They don't even take a weekend retreat or do, you know, a four-week new membership class. They, they spend a whole time as a community, a whole year, under Scripture, being shaped by it. So that, as it says in Ephesians, they are growing up in every way into Christ. I want to shine the spotlight for a second on Barnabas. Probably one of my favorite people in the New Testament. His nickname is Mr. Encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. Son of encouragement. And he seems to live and die by, by that name. Wherever this fellow goes and acts, people are strengthened, comforted. The Spirit's grace is poured out and the church is built and spurred into mission. We're told in Acts 4 that he was a generous giver to a man of not just time and talents, but a man with a baptized wallet. A man who gave generously. And Luke says he's good people. He says he was a good man. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Because of Barnabas, because he saw grace everywhere he went, the church, in a time when it could have divided into Gentile and into a Jewish church, 
it was unified and strengthened because he saw grace. And so he doesn't build a ministry around himself. What does he do? Verse 23 and 24. He goes looking for this fellow named Saul. You may have heard about. Barnabas realizes that more needs to be done and it can't all revolve around him. And so he leaves and goes looking for that old persecutor, Saul. Goes to his old hometown up in Tarsus in modern day Turkey. Looks for him and there he sees a great opportunity. A gospel match. He goes and recruits the best man for the job. And he brings him back to this church and he disciples there with him. Barnabas went looking for Saul in a time of his life when maybe he was struggling after his conversion. There was a period of silence where we don't know what Saul was up to. And that's the time that he went and found him. Maybe, Paul was, maybe Saul at that point was contemplating a future renounced from his family. And he doesn't know what it's going to look like for him now as a follower of Christ. And Barnabas goes and gets him and recruits him. Who is God calling you to be this morning? Can you be a Barnabas? Can I be a Barnabas? We need Barnabases in our churches. We need encouragers. We need people who see those who are on the sidelines and say, come, there's work, there's a call for you. Come, there's work to be done. There's a mission. Is there a Saul somewhere in this house? Is there someone who is maybe disconnected, but gifted and called? And just waiting for someone to come alongside and say, this is for you. Come. And then God uses them in amazing ways. Maybe that's you. Who will you invest into? Who will you welcome and encourage and build up? Who will you pour your time and talent into? Sisters, brothers, remember Barnabas. Look with me finally at verse 26. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called what? Christians. First time they were called Christians. I want to know why it was in Antioch that the disciples were first Christians. And I'm going to speculate that it's because they looked and talked like Jesus. So they named them Little Christs. His scholars, Antiochians, had a thing for nicknames. And so they nicknamed them Christians. And it stuck. They're good at it. It's stuck and it's come down throughout history. And it's, it's what we call ourselves, Little Christians, little Christs. If you are in Christ today, live into that identity and people will know you by that name. Let's recover that name away from the culture and away from all that to bring it back to the gospel so that people know us as Christians by our love, by grace, and by, by, by Christ. That's who we are before we're anything else. When people ask you, what are you? Who are you? I am a Christian. That is the most noble name, best way to introduce yourself. If the gospel is driving us, we will look more and more like a community devoted to Jesus and to one another, living by his spirit and under his word, like that church. Finally, the next two points are a little shorter, I promise. Mercy. Mercy is what we see next in verses 27 to 30. A church reaching out with the compassion of Christ. Luke's third portrait is a church marked by ministry. This, this guy, Agabus, stands up. This prophet stands up. In the context of the church gathering. They're in prayer of some kind. And the church is gathered in expectant prayer and the spiritual gifts are exercised. In this case, prophecy. It's not always predictive prophecy. Sometimes it's declarative. It's proclaiming the gospel. In this case, he is predicting something that would happen to the whole inhabited world. 
And we know that a famine that he proclaimed actually happened during the reign of Claudius, in, probably in the years 41 to 55. A succession of bad harvests and serious famines hit especially the land of Palestine, where the Jerusalem church is. And the Antioch church, the amazing thing for me is they take this prophet's words very seriously. They don't just shrug their shoulders and say, meh. They are moved by the compassion of Christ to reach out. They don't say, oh, you know, it's too early. We're a brand new church. We don't have the resources or the time to do this. But rather, they remember from the Gospels and by the Spirit, they are moved to be people of compassion to their brothers and sisters who are suffering. And so they decide to send a large collection. They set outside a contribution, each according to their ability, and send it to the elders in, Jer to the elders in Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. We know from history that they didn't just do this to each other, church, one church to another, but they also did that to their society at large. For example, we are told that when everybody ran away in the time of pandemics and plagues, the Christians stayed and they cared for the sick. We're told that they looked after the starving and the hungry. We're told that they welcomed the immigrants and looked after the sick and went and visited the imprisoned. We're told that in Hebrews as well. They toured the city's rubbish dumps, we're told, to rescue exposed infants and adopt them into their community. But they also looked after their needs of the sister churches. And so when the Holy Spirit made clear that their sister church in Jerusalem was going to suffer, they sent this as a way of showing unity and solidarity. Paul, I think this ministry of cheerful, big-hearted giving, church to the community, but also church to church, I think that is a neglected ministry. Because Paul spends so much time in the New Testament, talks about it. He describes it in many places as fellowship, partnership in the gospel. And I'm encouraged by that because I'm afraid of fundraising as a new church planter. But I believe that God intends to use, to use churches, to bless churches, and to spread on the work. It is part of God's call that churches help other churches in times of need, but also when the work of expanding and planting is happening. So this is bringing us all back to the gospel, right? This is bringing us back to the gospel. As we receive the mercy of Christ in our own lives, as individuals and as churches, it's not just about programs in the church, but it's also about our lifestyle. It changes. And we begin to give of ourselves. We build relationships with, with people. We do stuff in the community. I saw so many things up there this morning. That was wonderful. During offering, there's, there's CAP, there's seniors, a community ministry here in Dundas. There's so much, and that's what it looks like. There's safe families. There's so much that we can do to live and lean into the mercy and the compassion of Christ and to pour it out into other people's lives. Finally, as we close, worship and mission. Back to 13, verses 1 to 3. What was happening there in the church? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Worship and mission is the fourth portrait, the fourth, the fourth uh, scene 
that we have here that Luke gives us. Again, there's a context of worship. There's liturgy. There's prayer, fasting, singing. Expectation is in the air. There's hearts that are moved. And what does the Lord do? The Spirit speaks and sets aside people for mission. You see, worship is not just about us. It's not just about, oh, my relationship with Jesus or my feelings. It's about mission. If worship, if real worship, sustained worship in your life doesn't drive you out, we need to ask, am I really worshiping the Lord? Piper puts it well. He says, missions exists because worship doesn't. This is our responsibility as, as churches to see worship and love of Christ spread. And so that's how Antioch decides to plant a new church. When the Holy Spirit speaks, he, he issues a call and he says, thousands more haven't seen the light of Christ. And he says, set apart for me these two. And who is, is he called, are they called to set apart? Barnabas and Saul. And I can imagine people sitting there and saying, like, of everybody else, you want to send our best two people, Barnabas and Saul? But this is what the Spirit says, and the Antioch church responds. They, sends, they send their best people out. And I'm sure it was to their loss, but they sent these people out. But also notice that it's not just a willy-nilly thing. It's not hasty. Three components there. They fast. They take a solemn time of preparation and decision-making and action. They pray. They pray over it again and again, seeking God's guidance and confirmation. And finally, they lay hands on them when they recognize and endorse the call of God that these men go. I feel where these men, where, where the story's at, because in 10 days, Lord willing, I hope to be ordained by our presbytery. And a lot of people have asked me over the years, why do you just not go out and do your thing? You felt that call for so long to church planting. But the Holy Spirit orders and organizes and leads his church in methodical ways. And I don't think this work is to be entered into hastily. And so I, I think God has brought us to this point. And I believe that even for you, Grace Valley, as you pray, as you fast, as you seek, God will make it clear in time how you are to move forward. And part of that process is ordination, ordaining, commissioning men and women from your family, from your church, to go out and to continue this work. No self-led men. men. We are the church, and we go out together. We go out with a confirmed call of God. But I just want to land here as we close. Do we have that burning passion? If there's anything you remember from this morning, do you have that burden that passion to see Christ proclaimed and lives restored? Are we zealous to see the reign of Christ expand in southern Ontario, in the cities of southern Ontario, and in the rest of this country that really needs the gospel? I will close with this quote. Murray McShane said it well. These, these might be your two priorities in life. He says, there are two things about which it is impossible to desire with sufficient ardor personal holiness of life and the honor of Christ and the salvation of souls. That is our call. Let's pray. 
Living God, we thank you for your love towards us in Christ. Love that is beyond all breadth and height and width and depth. That love that surpasses knowledge. We thank you that you can capture us again this morning. You can capture hearts this morning that might be in this room that uh, that are longing. That they don't even know it, but Lord, you are their greatest longing and need this morning. Would you come by your Spirit and save? And would you come by your Spirit and call and energize us so that we can go out with the gospel? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.